0: If you have a Bible, open up to the book of Esther. We continue our series through the Old Testament book of Esther. Today we'll be in Esther chapter 7. And we're actually going to begin in chapter 6, verse 14, and then we will read through chapter 7. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed. And to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went to the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw the harm that was determined against them by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose sword saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, and the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Welcome to Regeneration. We are in Esther's
1: series, and so here we are in chapter seven. It's not like we just pick out stories that are like this to talk about so if you're new here we choose a book of the bible and then we go chapter by chapter and verse by verse through it and here we are esther chapter seven let me pray god thank you for your word and we ask holy spirit that you would be with your people that you would speak to us this morning in jesus name amen Uh, I wanted to first start out by looking at chapter 5 and just the irony between the last couple verses Pastor Steve read and chapter 5. So starting in chapter 5, verse 13. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. And then to the last couple of verses in chapter 7. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. This is just really ironic, isn't it? It's kind of funny. The gallows that he made for Mordecai was the very gallows that were used to hang him. It's just irony and tragedy all at the same time. And much of this tragedy is because Haman had no fear of God. And we can trace this back to Proverbs that says a lot about the fear of God. And those benefits are in having fear of God. Let me share a few of those Proverbs with you. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. And there are many more words of wisdom in the Bible regarding the fear of the Lord, The book of Proverbs is full of this wisdom, and Haman, like many who are like him, would benefit in reading Proverbs, Proverbs such as 27, verses 1 and 2. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. Last week, we briefly talked about how pride is deadly, and... Here we see Haman, full of pride, just boasting about himself, praising himself, and he didn't have a clue of what would happen to him after chapter 5. We recall what happened in chapter 5, starting in verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. So just boastful, prideful, arrogant, but clueless. And he loved praising himself with his own lips. What happened? to Haman at the gallows is just a classic example of what Solomon wrote about in Proverbs 26:27. Whoever digs a pit will fall in it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. And so maybe some here may be guilty of this, attempting to prevent someone else's success by digging a pit or rolling a stone for their failure, only to find that the one you're hurting is yourself. Attempting to sabotage another's relationship, their promotion at work, some sort of success, but all the while sabotaging yourself. And this is Haman, setting up the gallows for Mordecai, but ending up on the gallows himself. The pit digging and the rolling of stones to kill Mordecai and the genocide of the Jews, proving Proverbs 26, 27 true, and chapter 7 is where all of this unfolds. Now, thanks to Esther, who exercise tact and humility, discernment and patience. And this is what Proverbs says about this, Proverbs 25, verse 15. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. And that was Esther, who didn't just rush into the king's inner court where she would have been killed without being summoned. She used wisdom. She asked her community to fast for her and with her for three days, from food, and from drink. And then after this time of fasting, she thought about how she was going to position herself for success, to wear the right clothing, to put on the royal robes, and to put herself in view of the king from his throne. And after the king summoned her, she doesn't come right out and tell the king what she ultimately wanted, because what she was about to reveal was something that the king didn't know about her, even though they'd been married for four to five years at this time. And so you can just imagine... The surprise of finding something out this big from a spouse, she was going to tell the king, her husband, that she was going to be killed in less than a year because she was a Jew. Now, you keep in mind that Esther doesn't even have an idea if the king even likes her anymore because they haven't seen each other for 30 days. They haven't seen each other for a month. So you're probably thinking he probably doesn't like me. Because how can you be away from your spouse for that long? So there she is discerning her relationship with the king. And so the king asked her for the first time in Esther chapter 5, verse 3, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. Well, this is really good news. This is cluing her in that, you know, he probably still does like me. I've won favor in his sight but she still doesn't just jump at the opportunity to tell him what she ultimately wanted. She wanted to bring Haman into the picture, bring him into the room, not antagonistically or or putting blame or anything like that, but just to kind of feel things out, to get things there. And at this feast, Esther chapter five, verse six, the king asks Esther a second time, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And still Esther doesn't come out right away and tell the king what she wanted or what her request was. What does she do? She said in chapter 5, verse 8, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So she gets the second feast, which means that she definitely has found favor in the sight of the king. And everyone around them notices this as well including Haman's family and his friends because he's boasting about it, that he's the only one invited to this feast with the queen. And so we see her patience at work and we see that she's quite clever and she's quite systematic in how she's kind of setting all this stuff up and she's definitely won favor from the king and when she comes out with her request, how is he possibly going to deny her what she's asking after all of these different steps of saying, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom? and asking three separate times. So she's just really wise, she's just really discerning, and we know that timing is really significant. You look at Ecclesiastes 3 and what Solomon wrote here. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, Esther, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace, seasons. This is life where we need to exercise patience and we need to recognize there are seasons when things happen and when the opposite of those things happen. Esther is sharp. And things are falling into place for her to save herself and her people. And she's recognizing the timing of all of this. Chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said again to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request even to half of my kingdom? It shall be fulfilled. This is the third time that the king asked Esther what her wish was. And he told her that he'd grant her request even if it was a big ask, up to half your kingdom. Of course, this is hyperbole, but nevertheless, it's saying, like, ask for whatever, and I'll give it to you. Now, you notice how Esther answered. She's really humble in the way she answered, and she also supports her with her request with what she already knows about the king and how he feels about her. Look at verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, she did. She found favor, right? O king, and if it please the king, it will. He's asked three times what she wanted. Then she goes through something really smart. She doesn't bring up the Jewish people. She brings up me, your wife, the queen, who has found favor. Let my life be granted for my wish. And instantly the king would be thinking, who in this entire world dares to threaten the life of my queen? Like, this can't be possible. And then she brings up her people and my people, right? And my people for my request. And so this must be getting the king thinking, like, your people. And so here it is, identity revealed or starting to be revealed, which puts this decree of the genocide of the Jews right in the face of the king, knowing that he cannot take back that decree. That once it's laid out, he has to act on that. Knowing this, how is he going to save the queen's life if the queen's death sentence has already been announced? What Mordecai said in Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, let's look back to that. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews, which is true. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That time had come, and she was going to own that time, and she was going to work out and live out this time and occupy this time. What's important to keep in mind is that we have all been given the dignity from God to participate in his kingdom, all of us. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We have all been given the free will to act or not to act. To make choices on what we will do or not do in God's kingdom. The thing is this. The big story that God is going to do will happen with or without you and me. Jesus' return is not pending on what you and I do. That bigger story is going to happen regardless. But you and I have been given dignity to act in the choices within the bigger story. Knowing that his return is coming back, what are we going to do? For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from another place. The gospel will go out with you or without you. Without me or with me. It is going to go out. The greater story that God has already written will happen with or without us. The thing is, What part will you and I take in it as we live in his kingdom, making the choices that we make in it? Are we going to be part of that? God was going to save the Jews with or without Esther. Their lives were not in her hands. Their lives were not in Mordecai's hands. Their lives were not in the king's or Haman's hands. Their lives were in God's hands. And if she didn't do anything about it, he would have found another way. He would have done something else. Now it's a complete mystery to me as to how all of this works. That God's providence, that he's in control, yet working within our free will and all of our choices and all of this stuff is in harmony with each other, that's incredible to me. I don't get how that works. But that's God. And Esther kept her identity as a Jew secret from the king for four to five years. So she didn't keep any Jewish practices, none of the Jewish traditions or celebrations that entire time. And I don't know if she was comfortable with that or uncomfortable with that. Maybe because she was a secular Jew that it's just not a big deal. But maybe it was a big deal. Because either way, she had to deny herself from her family, from her friends during all these celebratory times. Things like Passover. So if you are like me, I have relatives and friends who just kind of celebrate Christmas. It has nothing to do with Christianity. They just like to get together to celebrate Christmas. And some of them are secular Christians within that. And they just like getting together to exchange gifts or to talk about life and to get updated on things. And it has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. But it's still a time that everyone loves and cherishes. She had to sit all of that out. She had to sit that Passover out. She had to sit down all those Jewish traditions and celebrations. Even if she was a secular Jew, they still celebrate those things. So either way, it wouldn't have been easy for her to separate from family, from friends, and to just disassociate completely from everything that she's grown up with. And maybe there are some who would question Esther's compromise of her faith. That for the last four to five years that you weren't really living as you proclaimed to be. Like you had this secret life, this secret identity. And I would argue that she indeed did compromise somewhere along the line. Now you're like, how do you know this? Because you and I do all the time. In the last four to five years anybody compromise on their christian walk on their christian testimony on their character on their faith are you saying like you've never lied you've never done anything to compromise your faith this is something that we're all guilty of and i thank god that he's gracious that he is ready to forgive that he is ready to accept you whenever you want to turn he's ready to receive you and he's ready to use you just like esther Might have been a secular Jew her entire life. Maybe it was just the four to five years of her life. Regardless of the time, this was her time now to do something for her Jewish family. And she stepped up and God used her. Some of you may be holding back your identity as a child of God. As a follower of Jesus. As a Christian. That even people at your place of work or people you go to school with. People you live with. Your family, your friends, they don't even know what Jesus means to your life. And it's just a secret life. And back to Ecclesiastes 3, we know that there's a season for everything and a time for every matter under heaven. So, something to ask yourself is what season are you in today? If you are living that secret life, is it time? Is it time to fit under that greater story? And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever people are in your life right now, maybe right now is your time to share Jesus, to share that love with them, to share the grace of God with them, that they are forgiven. Verse 4, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. This was the first time Queen Esther was letting on that she was a Jew to her husband, King Ahasuerus. And she lets him know that she, the queen, was one of those people who were sold. I don't know if this rubs you the wrong way, but if you can imagine that your spouse comes to you and said, like, someone sold me. Like, you're a piece of property. I can just imagine the king getting worked up at this point, And maybe some of us are thinking, well, how are the Jews sold by Haman? We turn back to Esther chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's law, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may be put into the king's treasuries." At the time, this looks like a brilliant thing because the king had just lost a war to the Greeks. So if you lose a war to the Greeks, you don't get the spoil. That cost him a lot of money. And so for Haman to say, hey, I'm going to pay up what you lost, this is really appealing. Now, is Haman going to pay that out of his own pocket? Does he have that much money? Absolutely not. How is he going to do it? The genocide of the Jews, he's going to take some of what they've lost and he's going to give that to the king and the rest of it, he's probably kind of going to sneak some into his own pockets as well. And so he is being crafty. He's being wily here. And so Haman sold the Jews and King Ahasuerus. His queen, Esther, was one of them. Now we know Haman's a punk, right? This guy's a punk, but he's a smart punk. This guy's smart. And during this time, I can just imagine that he's connecting all the dots of what Esther's saying here. And I can just imagine that things are starting to change for him physiologically, just like his heart's beating a little faster, maybe his facial color's changing, like things are, like, what is she getting at? What, what is she getting at here? And, and so now Esther's kind of caught in a tough place because how was Esther going to incriminate Haman without associating that decision to the king? It's tied, right? Because ultimately, the king is who signed off on that decree. Well, she's pretty shrewd. And you look at how she phrases her words in the second sentence in verse 4. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So she's letting the king know, king, you are king. You're the king. There's no question of that. And if this were merely an issue about me being sold as a slave, then fine, because as a king, you wouldn't lose anything. You would still have all the Jewish people paying taxes, contributing to the community. You'd still have me, the queen that has found favor from you. But the way that things are, I'm dead. There's a decree out there that he sold us out to kill all of us. And so I, as your queen, I am now dead. So whoever did this sort of thing is going to kill me. Verse 5. Then King Ahasuer said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy. This wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Maybe Haman had no clue who Esther was alluding to. I think he did. He's pretty smart. I think he had an idea. But in verse 6, it leaves no question at all. She, by name Esther, pointed him out, and the king is really ticked off now. He's really upset. Verse 7, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And for being as smart as Haman was to rise to the place of power and prominence and influence within the Persian empire. We find that he's pretty clueless. I mean, this is a really smart guy. This is just like how many politicians are. They're just full of talent. They're really smart. They have a great ability. But sometimes they're just clueless. Esther chapter 5, verse 12. Let me point some of this out to you. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. It wasn't to rub elbows with the royal family. This was so that she can indict him. Right? Esther chapter 6, verse 6. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And it was Mordecai. But he was so full of himself. He just thought it was him and he's clueless about this. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, about thinking about yourself. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He also wrote in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We are not to be like Haman. Haman is the antithesis of Jesus. We are to be like Jesus. Now continuing on in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. We clearly see the differences between Haman and Jesus. Let me point out some things about the differences between King Ahasuerus and King Jesus. Look at how they handle betrayal. The first sentence in Esther 7.7 reads, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. Now we look at Jesus at a feast as well. Mark chapter 14, he's celebrating the Passover with his disciples in verse 23. And he took a cup with wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That was their garden, Garden of Gethsemane. We see how King Ahasuerus handles wine such as in Proverbs chapter 20 verses 1 and 2. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Listen to this verse, verse 2. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion; whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. Isn't that prophetic. See that's what happened to Haman and the king. And the way the king handled Haman was to hang him on the gallows. Not so with King Jesus. Psalm 104, verse 15, the psalmist wrote that God brought forth wine to gladden the heart of men. And so Jesus celebrated the Passover with wine, but he did not get drunk. He did not let it get him astray. But there was a betrayal. Judas was there, betrayed him. Yet we look at Jesus and what was he like? He wasn't full of wrath. The king went out to the palace garden in wrath. Jesus went to the garden of Gethsemane in prayer. King Ahasuerus compared to our king, Jesus. There are many other comparisons you can draw for it if you just kind of did your own self-study. Continuing on in verse 8, Esther 7. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Things are just not going well for Haman. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. So if you can just picture what's happening here, the king is returning from the palace garden and just as he's returning, Haman happens to fall on the couch where Esther was and to him it looks like an assault on the queen. There are some Jewish commentaries out there on Esther that claim that the angel Gabriel pushed Haman over, and that's how it happened. Cool, whatever. Push or no push, it happened, and good for them. And what it does prove, though, is that his wife, Zeresh, is a prophetess. Because what did she say in chapter 6, verse 13? If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. The king was already pretty ticked off at Haman prior to this fall. And this kind of fall just kind of sealed his fate. Like, that's it. And his guys don't even have to ask the king. The king doesn't have to wink or anything. It's, as he's talking, these guys just <laughs> cover his face and off he goes. And that was his death sentence. That was it. Job chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. This is what is written about crafty people. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. Haman. Can you imagine him just kind of grasping in the head and crafty wily who met darkness during the daytime? Verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king... Is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. Hey, King, Haman was going to hang Mordecai. You know that guy? That guy who saved you from the assassination attempt? He was going to hang him in front of his house. That guy that all of chapter 6 is about that he wore your royal robes and he rode your royal horse and he wore your crown and he was paraded around the town square and Haman was announcing like how this guy is so worthy of honor and all this kind of stuff. He was going to kill that guy, the guy who saved your life. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Now you look at the life of Haman And it's just really, really tragic. Because how much effort, work, energy, resources, support from your family would it take to rise to the second most important, powerful, prominent role in all of the Persian Empire? How much work does that take to do that? And to end like this? You can't go any higher unless you are the king himself. It is the pinnacle of success. It is the pinnacle of significance, prestige. All of it, gone. King Solomon summed it up best in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. All of it. Our joy will not be found in anything or anyone but God. Because even through Haman, even though he's gone, he's been killed, that decree still stands and the Jews will still face death. So did rest lie in the absence of Haman? No, because that death sentence is still there. The genocide is still going to happen. Does peace lie in King Ahasuerus? No. Because he can't do anything to reverse that decree because once it is set, it is set. So does security lie in ourselves? Does it lie in the Jewish people themselves? No. Because you look at history, throughout history, when have the Jews ever been secure? So is it in themselves? No. Rest, peace, security, all those things can only be found in God. And in the book of Esther, we see that God is in control. How so? Let's just look at the king's insomnia as an example. Okay? Haman had no control of the king's sleeping patterns. It's not like right before he went to bed he gave him a red bowler. Like, he's, he's just no control over that, right? And the king couldn't control his sleeplessness. So how do we explain the difficulty the king had in sleeping? And this difficulty in sleeping is what led him to read the Chronicles. And in reading those Chronicles, out of all the stories there, he reads the story of Mordecai. Now keep in mind, this is an event that happened four to five years ago. So why wouldn't the king read a story that happened a year ago? Why wouldn't the king read a story that happened ten years ago? He read that story. Now is that a coincidence? It just doesn't seem like it. Now we see that God is in control of the bigger story. The Jews would be saved from annihilation with or without Esther. Yet he's also in her choices. He's in our choices. Esther 4.14, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. She acted upon the circumstances that were in front of her. She chose to act and God was in it. She put forth the effort to find favor. But was all of that her? Was everything her? I find this really hard to believe, because prior to being a queen, Esther was just like everybody else, a little bit prettier, according to the king, but just an average person. She wasn't like a well-educated person. She didn't come from a great family lineage or anything like that. She was of the Jewish descent. She's just like everybody else. And then all of a sudden, four to five years later, she's able to navigate this whole situation and outsmart Haman the second-in-command of the entire Persian Empire? It just seems really unlikely, doesn't it? What seems more likely is that God was at work in Esther's choices, but he wasn't dependent on her to accomplish his will. He was still going to do his thing. Now, isn't this why the church exists? Jesus is coming back. The gospel will go forth with or without you, with or without me. It's just how do we fit into that bigger story knowing that God doesn't need us because if it's not us, it'll be somebody else. It'll be something else that spreads the love of God to people that don't know him and deepens the love of God in people who do. And then there are some of us who have chosen to be God's instruments of love and he is at work in us even though we haven't seen him. See, our lives are very much like the book of Esther because... In the book of Esther, God is not seen, God is not even mentioned by name. Isn't that like our lives? Isn't that like the lives of people in our world who don't acknowledge God at all, who think there's no existence of God, who think that it's just whatever they think it is, but it's not God? Yet no one has seen God, and God is still working in our world. Now, if someone claims to have seen God, they're lying. Okay, I'm just telling you, they're lying. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. That's what it says. So if anyone claims that they've seen God, I advise you to run. Like, just run. like just Don't listen to it, okay? And this is what 1 John chapter 4, verse 12 says. But if we love one another, God abides in us. It reads this. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Whether God is acknowledged or not, God is in control. He's never mentioned in the book of Esther. His name is never mentioned. Whether our world acknowledges God or not, he's still in control. Even when the Hamans of the world seem to prosper and they seem to be getting ahead, he's still in control. And if any of us need proof of this, just look at world history. Out of all the great empires that have ever existed throughout the world, including the Persian Empire... They've all come and gone, haven't they? Where's the Roman Empire today? Where's the Ottoman Empire today? Where are any of the great emperors of Asia? Like They're all gone. Who remains? God is still on the throne. God is still working. God has been so patient and long-suffering for people to turn to him. Ever since Genesis, since the beginning of humankind, he has extended his love to us all throughout human history. If you don't know him this morning, will you receive that today? And every time you don't, you develop a tolerance not to, just like anything else. And you continue to callous yourself and not go forth towards God. So I would encourage you to accept his love today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, specifically for anyone who does not know you, who does not have a relationship with you, yet, Lord, you are in their life. You're not ever mentioned in the book of Esther. You're never acknowledged in the book of Esther. Yet, Lord, we see your fingerprints throughout the story. And so we pray, Lord, for those who do not yet know you, that they would open their heart and their mind to you. Pray, Lord, for those who have a difficult time with you right now. Maybe they're just not walking closely with you. They're not abiding with you. And yet, if they don't abide with you, Lord, they're going to have a tough time seeing you. So, God, may you change their heart. May you draw them closer. May they have that intimate relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.